0: I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Mark and Ruth Kang, who lead the church in Detroit, Michigan. Listen as they share about two things that could dramatically change churches around the world Mark's unique speaking style, what they would do if they had to start over from zero, what they view as the next growth center in their church and churches around the world, and finally, the power of developing leadership. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I am really excited about the CLIMB conference coming up November 30th. It's two months away. It's going to be amazing, and I want you to be there. We're going to have amazing speakers, Sean Wooten. We've got Kevin Miller from Boston. We've got Dave Bliley from Australia. We've got people from All over the place who are going to be providing practical teaching, inspiring lessons, just help. Help to do do great things for God in your church and in your life. So please sign up at robskinner.com if you haven't already and book your flight. It's going to be Thursday, November 30th through Sunday, December 3rd. I want to see you there. Please register today. Who's the most impressive disciple you know under the age of 30? I mean, someone who's really standing out for their love for God and passion to serve Him. I want to talk to that man or that woman. So I'd like to ask you to please email me the name of the man or woman under the age of 30 you think I should interview next on the Rob Skinner podcast. Please email me at rob at robskinner.com. Mark and Ruth, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks,
0: Rob. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's, it's really great. I've been looking forward to talking to you guys mark you did a a program for us during the pandemic on on how to preach and you've got a very unique preaching style which i'm sure we'll we'll cover a little bit later but let me ask you this question how'd you guys become christians
1: yeah um i actually was reached out to when i was a freshman in college so that's when i started learning about god and in that time i had a boyfriend (laughs) who did not want to have anything to do with god so um it was a crossroads for me you know god or or my boyfriend mm. and after realizing who god was because i wasn't always a churchgoer uh it was helpful to know and in about two weeks i decided to break up with him and follow jesus yeah
2: and god blessed that decision <laughs> yeah. so you know <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah, I was, uh, reached out to by class me, uh, at the university of British Columbia and I wasn't as soft hearted as my wife. She studied about one in a couple weeks. I took about six months, really wrestled. I-, I think part of it was, uh, understanding the enormity of the decision. Like, am I going to live like this? But also part of it was just my own selfish, sinful, prideful heart. Uh, but, uh, once I made the decision, uh,
0: thankfully haven't looked back. So you guys were converted in the same church in, in Vancouver. Vancouver. Uh, no,
1: I was at the University of Toronto
0: and then
2: I was in Vancouver, Canada. So uh, we later met uh, when I, I flew, I uh, moved to Toronto in the late 90s to to go into the full time ministry.
0: Got it. OK, so you guys are both Canadians. That's yes, right. right. That's right. Right. OK, ethnically, you're Chinese, Korean Canadians or I'm Korean.
1: I actually was born in the Philippines and I moved to Canada when I was 15. Yeah. So I'm dual language.
2: Yeah. So she speaks three languages actually. But uh I yeah, my parents were immigrants from South Korea. Uh and uh you know, and then I, so I was I was raised as first generation Canadian. Uh pretty pretty typical kind of Korean upbringing. My parents were small business owners and uh yeah, I mean they so for a lot of uh, Asian Americans at that, especially in the the seventies and eighties, uh, my dad was a chemical engineer by education. My mom was a school teacher, but because of the language barrier, uh, they became small business owners, which was a pretty common path for for Asian American immigrants, Okay. particularly South Korea.
0: And they went to Vancouver. That's right. Okay, and then so you're you're Filipina,
1: That's right. Uh,
0: Canadian and yeah. Okay, how did how did your family get to to Canada? Uh,
1: short story is that they were actually living first in California, then realized it was taking so long, uh, then moved to Canada. My dad always, my mom and dad always wanted to move abroad from the Philippines because it was difficult there, uh, but yeah, that's how they decided to go.
0: So you you speak Tagalog.
1: Tagalog, so that's right. In the state dialect that I have, which is Kapampangan, it's hard to say Kapampangan.
0: Wow, I'm not even going to try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still can't. I mean, I've been married to her for 20
2: years. I still can't say it. It, it comes out sounding like an insult, <laughs> like, I'm, like I'm making fun of her language, but I'm not. I'm trying to imitate it.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, how did you guys get together? How did you guys meet?
2: Uh well we were initially uh members of the toronto campus ministry together that was a large church uh and uh you know we
1: first met at a leaders meeting and uh back then we would meet like every three months as a congregational leadership team and i met him at one of those
2: yeah and i think in our opinion as i kind of you hearken back and you kind of reinterpret your past i think we were uh the benefits of a great dating culture, mm-hmm. uh, and so what that allowed us to was before we even really kind of uh, it got had a romantic interest, we were just great friends, uh, and I think that's kind of the fruit of a great dating culture. Uh, and but the the turning point of that friendship came when we were we were both leading a ministry together, mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh, from that probably a, a year and a half later we got married.
0: Right, that happened with Pam and me. I mean, we we knew each other, dated a little bit, but. Once we start working together it's like wow okay this is kind of accelerated things for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you kind of see what it's like to work as a team mm-hmm. and you you see the good and bad side of everybody, their strengths and you're like, "Hey, this really works." You
0: know? <laughs> so what yeah. year what year did you guys get married? 2000.
1: 2000.
0: 2000. Okay. And any kids?
1: We have three awesome
2: Three sons. Boys. Yeah, three sons, uh 16, 19, and
0: 21. Oh my gosh. You guys are right in the middle of it. That's exciting. That's fantastic. Okay. Ruth, four, three, three boys. How's that?
1: Honestly, I love every minute of it.
0: I have loved
2: <laughs> most moments of it. <laughs> And uh, it's uh, been been an incredible journey. I have loved ninety four percent of the moments.
0: <laughs> so, Ruth, you just decided, okay, I'm three boys. That's it. I'm not going to push for a girl.
1: We wanted more, but we I had a challenge with the last one. I see. So we couldn't have. Okay. Four. We really wanted four kids.
0: Okay. So but God said, "You guys, when you guys started dating, you were already in the ministry. Why did you guys choose ministry?"
2: Yeah. uh, uh, So I would say our paths are a little different. I would say growing up, my personality leaned towards the things that ministry likes. I think, you know, I grew up on like Rocky. And so I liked, uh, you know, inspiration. Uh, I saw like one of my favorite sports movies is also Hoosiers, you know, uh, leadership, teamwork, uh, bro culture. Um, And then that coupled with I I always... uh, even long before I actually became a Christian before I knew the Bible, I, I had a I had a keen leaning towards God you know I would pray at night for things and I would see them come true or mm-hmm. I would see God working uh, And then when they studied the Bible with me, um, it just made so much sense to me you know, this is what I need to do this is uh, so uh, from that I, I would say that the next layer for ministry was, I love the character of the men and women that I saw in the ministry. Mm-hmm. Like I, like, I love, like I, I look at an evangelist when I was 19, 20. And I was like, these are awesome guys. They were fun, funny, humble, and powerful, inspiring, great leaders. And I was like, that's, that's what I want to be. So uh, kind of, um, yeah, I kind of felt like it, you know, it was just when I saw ministry, I was like, oh, that this is what I have meant to do my whole life kind of thing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think for me, I took more of an Abraham path. And what I mean by that is like, okay, I always knew that I wanted to love God and serve God somehow, um, always asked to be in leadership position and wanted to be in the ministry. But when I graduated, I was already working for a bank at the time. And so wasn't sure if I was going to get called into the ministry then an opportunity came up and they they were like, we really need somebody here. And so I jumped right in because, like Mark said, we were surrounded by amazing, amazing ministers, uh, young and old. Uh, We were just like, if you were not in the ministry, it felt like, why are you not? You know, if you're a leader, you should do ministry. So I guess for me, that was one of those things that not only that I felt called, I was inspired by those that are. Uh, ser- serving in the ministry as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, how'd you guys get to the States? I mean, you guys are both mm-hmm. up in Toronto working on staff there. I mean, now, yeah. now you're in Michigan, which is kind of close to Canada, but what brought you to the States? path. Maybe, yeah. Uh, maybe you can kind of give us an overview of where you've been since you guys got married.
1: Right. Yeah. So when we were in Toronto, we led different, parts of toronto church whether it's uh singles campus mostly campus at the time and then one time a married sector and then uh in 2005 there was an opening in indianapolis church
2: oh sorry Um, we stepped out in 03 for a couple years
1: yes and then stepped out in 03 for a couple years had two babies and then um moved to indianapolis church to work at the university of Purdue University, to help lead the campus ministry there in West Lafayette. And then two years later, um, there was another opening in Milwaukee Church. So that's where we ended up going.
2: We led the campus there for four years. Uh, And then after four years, we took over the church. And then we led the church there for four years. Um, And then we've been in Detroit
0: now for eight years.
1: Yeah. So 2015, we got asked to move in Detroit. So we've been here since.
0: Wow. Okay. So you went straight into the Midwest, two years in West Lafayette, Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Indianapolis. Then you went to West Lafayette for four years? Uh, no,
2: West Lafayette is, is, is where Purdue is. That's, that's where we were in Indiana. So we were there for two years. Okay. Uh uh, from from Purdue, Indiana, we went to Milwaukee. And we were in Milwaukee for eight years for campus and for leading the church.
0: Wow. Okay. So eight years in Milwaukee, eight years. Okay. Upper Midwest. Okay. That's right. <laughs> tell you me about the terminology, right? Exactly. I mean, that's that's cold country. That's that's woo. That's beer country. Cold country. It is.
2: You're talking to Canadians, so uh, you know, we just <laughs> we just call it country. <laughs>
0: Okay. It, let, let me just talk. Te, can you explain a little bit about the church in in Detroit? Where has it been at? How long has it been there? What size is it? Can you just kind of give a, a snapshot of the church in Detroit?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great group. Uh, it consists of, of two regions, the east, which is kind of what meets in uh, a suburb of, known as Livonia. And then you kind of have the, the 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 west region, which is where Ann Arbor is. That's where the University of Michigan, that's kind of where our campus sort of branch is located. And for most of the year, we meet separate locations on a Sunday. And the entire group is about 250 and with about, you know, uh, 80 to 90 children so you can imagine you know on a sunday it's, you know with friends and family on a big on a big easter sunday we can get almost 500 and then on a uh you know on a smaller one you're probably looking at something like four uh but it's a it's a pretty it's it's an amazing group we i would say that uh, you know obviously every ministry you lead has a particular you know place in your heart it's like comparing your children in some ways uh, but this congregation, I would say is particularly loving, uh, and, uh, you know, without getting into all these details, I think every time we've seen a challenge or a crisis, the church sort of steps up in a great way. And, uh, I think, you know, there's different strengths and weaknesses each church has. What I would say is that if, as an evangelist, if you were to lead this church, you know, you, you would, you know, you'd see its weaknesses, but you would feel loved and taken care of by the congregation, which I don't think every church has that
0: strength. Mm-hmm. I mean, Detroit, that's Motor City. That's, I mean, just, it's, it's, it, you know, it's in the States for sure. You go, okay, that's that's a hard-boiled, hard-boiled city. That's part of the Rust Belt. You know, that's car factories, all that kind of stuff. Any, How does that affect the church and its its culture?
1: Uh, we definitely have an awesome worship team. Motown. I, I'm very proud of our a group in that way because they are a standout. Uh, we definitely have a lot of engineers yep. because of the you know Ford company and other engineering companies here.
2: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with her. I'd say the texture of it is that you get the benefit of it being Motown, which is kind of a musical kind of center in America. And we had the benefit of quite a bit of talent. You know, not all. Like, again. <laughs> I think with evangelists, they're always in this place where they're trying to improve their worship team. This is, uh, in my opinion, a great worship team. <laughs> uh, people use their... Uh, abilities. Yeah, they use their talents, and they're pretty excited about it. We have a great volunteer group, uh, and then the engineers. Yeah, I think that provides kind of a, a stability, a base of people that are generous, uh, and you know,
1: uh, it's pretty diverse too. Yeah,
2: it's it's it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty it's pretty
0: diverse group. Okay, that I mean that's 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 really interesting. If you could if you could just wave your magic wand, okay, and improve one area of your church. And even the key yeah. kingdom at large what would it be like if you could just go okay i really want to see this change dramatically if you could just wave that magic wand and it could change overnight what would it be
2: yeah let me say uh that's a convicting question and because i think that um we the way that we are wired is to kind of maybe fret and worry about these things but we don't give enough thought to what we're actually wanting to see god do mm. And it's convicting because you're like, okay, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm worried or I'm trying to improve the church, but what prayer do I want God to answer? And that's what came to my mind when you said the question. And so I guess the, the uh, way that I would answer it is what I most pray about. And certainly recently for the church is, is two things is one uh, for specifically for Detroit or Michigan is, is a great, dating culture which might not seem like an obvious answer to prayer but i think packaged within a healthy dating culture in my opinion is you are you have impressed upon the youth of your church the importance of shining like a star in this area and i think there's what other way can christian like what other more powerful way can christians stand out especially single christians uh, then to honor, then to show just sort of honoring each other and the and the, and sort of the intimate closeness of brother sister friendships, uh, the, you know that the Bible describes of how we ought to view each other. And so that that's one prayer. But I think on a more macro level, I think packaged in your question was like, well, what would you? if You could wave your wand. How would you change the church and how would you change the kingdom? And I I think that we all sense the one thing that's not only lacking in the kingdom, but worldwide, is there's a leadership void, right? And there is a leadership void in the world and in the kingdom. And I kind of hearken back to a a question that a dear friend asked. I was talking to the administrator of the Kansas City Church. My wife studied the Bible with her, and we're we're, we're quite close to her and her husband. Uh, But, you know, she was just asking me a question like, do you still enjoy ministry in these days or, you know, and she kind of was implying like, because a lot of people don't. You know, you know, do you enjoy ministry at this current time? And it's like, you know, my wife and I have never thought to ask ourselves that question. Mm -hmm. And and, then, you know, like, of course, there's tough times. But what I what I said to her was. I have never felt more like there is a leadership void, like at this hour, we need courageous men. Mm -hmm. You know, we need courageous, like to be able to stand in the gap. And, and so, yeah, you know, what would I wave my eye? more leaders and, and Robert, you and I know the difference and it's it's kind of cliche, but it's so true. And it's kind of what we were raised on. You and I know the difference one man can make or one woman. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the faith of one man who truly believes things can be different, right, That things can be better and has sort of the conviction to do that and i'm sort of compelled by that at the end of the day yes things are messed but the reason is not because people will always be people you know human nature it's i mean the bible narrative of, of time is that it's just big cycle it's this big circle you know obviously we're progressing technologically and educationally but that's not true spiritually we just cycle around just finding until we find god and so you know what, what's the elixir, it's it's that men and women are like, okay, things are bad. I'm going to stand in the gap. And right.
1: So. Yep, I agree. I, I think the dating culture, Rob, is like looking down 5, 10, 15 years from now, right? If people are not having dates or going on dates right now, where are they going to end up? Right. Uh, same thing with leadership. If we're not raising or training people up right, right now, 10, 15 years from now, what's going to happen? So these, in our hearts, are both very future-oriented. Like, if you can't take care of this now, disaster will happen in 10 years. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that I totally agree. I love the dating culture in 80s and 90s especially. I know that's going way back there, but it seems like the current trend is toward yeah, I'm just going to do what I want to do if I feel that like I'm going to go out or, you know, or just hanging out kind of in an amorphous blob with groups of people rather than, Hey, let's go out and let's spend time together. And I mean, it was just so awesome. It was so much excitement, fun, enjoyment, and it produced a lot of really good fruit. Um, but I, I totally absolutely agree with you that that is something that would be amazing. And of course, just leaders like Jesus nailed it. I mean, of all the things he could do in the short ministry period he had, of course, he had to die on the cross, but then just focus on raising up leaders. I just go, wow, that's incredible that he had that focus. Okay, totally. so, so <clears throat> I want to ask you a couple more questions about your your speaking style. You, you did a class. Your speaking, Mark, has been considered kind of close to like a TED Talk,
2: Okay.
0: Measure kind of measured, logical. I've listened to your sermons online and it's you have a very interesting and professional delivery. How did you get that and why?
2: Uh well, it must, my wife will tell you it's been quite an evolution. Yes. I was definitely a nineties classic
0: screamer just do
2: this. <laughs> I wouldn't say screamer, but I think people used to uh would say I would, you know, get pretty excited. I think that was a lot of it was just sort of manifested nervousness for a young man uh and excitement. Um I think what I would say is to all the speakers there is I think I hit a place where I became very comfortable with my speaking. Um And I may have shared this with you in that little Zoom uh, class, but uh, you know where you can guide like you sort of understand the elements that go into um, a lesson that that that's easy to process and and easy to memor to remember and uh, but I also felt like as speakers you constantly need to improve your craft like to me I, I stopped being nervous and I I think that was a bad thing for me because it I guess it felt like I was less courageous in my preaching and that there was, and it's not that my lessons had less it was content wise, but I still felt the need to kind of push myself and go, I don't know if this is going to work, how I convey this. And so I, part of it is I started memorizing my lessons. Um, and I'm currently doing a hybrid, but I, I know for like two years, I think it was 21 and 22. I just, from beginning to end, you know, whether it's, you know, sink or swim, I was going to memorize those lessons. I would walk out and I'd be like, okay, and you know, I would forget things. Pretty common. The good thing was nobody knew because <laughs> you know, I just, oh, I would just go home and be like, oh, I totally forgot that point, you know. Uh, and and I got better at it. And I, and right now, what I do is a bit of a hybrid. The only reason I'm doing a hybrid now is because it just puts less pressure on uh, prep time uh, to memorize it, um, but what I would say is the process of memorizing and most things in life are like this, right? Like you initially start that journey thinking like, Oh, this is going to improve my memory. But like kind of the old saying with any disciplined effort, it brings multiple rewards. As I started to write these lessons, I had to memorize, I had to construct lessons that had more like logical flow. Otherwise I couldn't memorize. Right. I'd be like, okay, I, I haven't like, I would, if I just threw together three points that weren't connected, my memory, right? I was like, okay, I don't even like, this doesn't make sense. And it was clear to me that I wrote an inferior lesson because of my lack of ability to sort of logically memorize. Yeah. And so as I started to memorize more, it sort of, I put more of a demand on the writing process to be more fluid and logical so that the memory would be like, you know, ABC kind of thing, uh, and create more memory devices that are baked into the writing. Uh, and so, uh, that was kind of my, my, uh, my evolution. I think that, uh, I'm a big you know believer of creating an emotional connection with the audience, uh, whether that's a joke or a story or, uh, an analogy. And I think that also ultimately those are just devices that we were saying, you know, getting people to, to consider the word of God and, and to make, but I do think, listen, preachers can make, we can train people to dislike the word of God if we don't. Push ourselves to make it inspiring.
0: Right. Okay. With that format and that style, how do you bring the emotion and the power? Mm. Um. I mean, does does that yeah. put a cap on? You, you just your delivery, the intensity. How do you How do you make up for that?
2: Yeah, uh, you know. Again, and there's different philosophies, obviously, as as preachers. I think that. Ultimately, once I have the text, and that, that, that is arguably the most important thing that you start with as a preacher, like what text am I preaching from? Uh, I stand. I come from the standpoint of like, it's not a good lesson until I help you see this scripture in a different way. And I want you, no matter what my text, if I say Ephesians 6, every preacher knows I'm going about the spiritual battle, right? If I say that, but I want you, if you're listening to my lesson to think, oh, Mark's preaching. I want to see what new take he has on this. Mm. And because I want you to feel like that's what Mark does when he preaches, he makes me look at scriptures. I've seen a thousand times in a new way. And so for me, that that's kind of what that's what takes the bulk of my time is because I I literally write down okay what are the obvious things I'm going to say about the scripture oh you know Ephesians six ah oh, the battle rages around okay that's what everyone says <laughs> boom let's not say don't that say right that. yeah so let's not say that and so I write down everything that's obvious first so that I don't say it and then I go okay well, you know and then I look at the text again and I, is there a word that we haven't focused on that the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. that we just glaze over. Uh, So that's part of the process for me. And once I get that, I'm like, boom. Uh, And then I, uh, and probably a lot of teachers do this, but I journal regularly. I would, I want to say daily, except that, you know, whatever, there's that occasional day once every two weeks where I'm like, Oh, I forgot to journal, but essentially daily. And I, and I, and I feel, uh, you know, pretty, you know, uh, forthright saying that. And I, I I, I do that because I, I document anecdotes and funny things. And so, Um, you know, I'll have an interaction with my son will make me laugh and I'll quickly go like, I got to write that down. I might not use it today, but I'm going to use it another time. So I I think part of it is developing those habits.
0: That's like John Maxwell. He talks about that one of his books. He keeps a file of all his, his sermon illustrations that he reads or that he likes that impact him. And he just kind of keeps it. I mean, he's made a huge career for himself on leadership books, just on collecting stories. So that's, that's really valuable. What's one thing about you guys that many people may not know?
1: I graduated with a degree in math.
0: People don't know that.
1: Most people probably don't know that because I'm not typically... She's a
2: master of the culinary arts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm very artsy at the same time. I think that's why people don't know I have a degree in math because I love decorating. I love... Everything to make beautiful interior, exterior, everything. So that's one thing. The other thing maybe is that people don't know that I can do reflex reflexology. Oh
2: she's a professional reflexologist.
0: She she went to school, did the practical. Um so uh... okay. Reflexology, is that having to do with your feet?
1: That's right. That's right, that's right. Basically, right. it's massaging the nerve endings that are on your feet to stimulate growth for the rest of your body, growth and healing.
2: Healing, And so it's okay. like acupuncture, but instead of using needles, it's a massage pressure point.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. When did you pick up that talent? When did you study for that?
1: Uh, I, it was 2004. My husband actually had a health issue at the time. And the only thing that was able to help him was a doctor of foot reflexology. So I thought, let me study that out too. In case that happens again. Mm-hmm. So I've done it for him and for my kids. And I can honestly tell you, none of the kids got sick cool. a lot. Yeah. Not at all. Well, fairly,
2: <laughs> yeah. She she would massage their feet, they'd be screaming. And, um, <laughs> but uh, but it would work. Yeah. So wow.
1: been yeah. beneficial.
2: Yeah. I, I'd mentioned this before. For me, it's that I was a, grew up in the restaurant, you know. And I, I think my like my congregation knows that, but I think most people you know, when I tell the story, certainly when I travel, people are surprised or, you know, even people that know me for a bit didn't know. But, um, you know, when I was 10, my parents said, you're going to start working. And, you know, the kind of the typical sort of picture of a little Asian kid wearing an apron, working in the working in the kitchen, kind of chopping food and stuff like that. Uh, by the time I was 12, it was um Working full time hours. And, and, it, you know, it was pretty normal. Like I wasn't an isolated person. Like my cousins, they, you know, their parents were small business owners. And I knew a couple of kids uh, that I went to school with. They were, you know, and we would kind of have this fraternity of like, you're a restaurant kid. I'm a restaurant kid. I worked till midnight too. That's nothing. And you're kind of comparing, <laughs> uh, you know, but I would say it certainly shaped a work ethic and responsibility. And I, I think it's where I get, um, a strength to sort of manage tension because the, the restaurant business is frantic right and there's always a propensity to like when things get busy to like wig out like we got five customers and you just want to go <laughs> you know and we're running out of food and then you know and, and, and the pot machine's not working and that all sort of happens at once in a yeah. restaurant and you know doing that for like growing up from 10 11 12 13 you know then you kind of like go to church and it's like one person is upset. You're like, eh, I guess this isn't so bad,
0: you know? <laughs> so that experience definitely provided some benefits.
2: No doubt. You know, it's a classic sort of, uh, older, uh, you know, kind of, you know, midlife where you look back and, you know, obviously when I was a kid, you're like, Oh, when do I have to not work? You know? And yeah. you, I resented coming home, smelling like, you know, food. Bacon. Yeah. Right. And then, then you, of course, you go back as an adult and you go, man, that was probably like the best experience I could have had right. in terms of sh- good things about my character.
0: Right. And let's let's talk a little bit about about race and that and that issue. Like I think about people that are children of immigrants, people, friends I've known, people like Dat Doe, other people like Frank Kim. I don't know what it is, but very, very impressive people. Super, super aggressive, super hardworking, got a work ethic that just. Puts others to shame. I mean, anything else that you look back on your upbringing as children of immigrants that has really set you apart, that, you know, it's been either good or bad, indifferent, in and it's really shaped you? I could start. Yeah.
1: I think, you know, growing up in the Philippines, like you see it's, it's poverty, you see like hardship. And so your parents always taught you be excellent. Do things right the first time. You know, as a kid, you didn't want to hear those things. But then uh, you see how hard it is. And then you move to Canada and you see, wow, everything looks easy. Like I remember going to class in 10th grade in the Philippines. At 10th grade, you would have like eight classes. I come to Canada, I have four. Mm. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) I will definitely excel. And so I think just seeing that. I had so little back there that I treasured it. Like I made use of it very well. And then I come here, I can apply that and be excellent even more. So I think experiencing the difficulty helped me realize it's, it's okay. Like even now I can be excellent. Mm -hmm. So just having that mindset that whatever you do, whatever you are in charge of, make the best out of it because you never know what if you live back in a difficult situation, right? So for me, that helped me realize: don't take things for granted. You know, do well with what you have. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I think. Uh, well, I would say for about the sort of the, I had a typical Asian American uh, upbringing, and uh, it's this is this will be humorous only. If you're, well, I will think it will be humorous to anyone, but it's humorous particularly if you're Asian. And that is, I took martial arts, I took (laughs) piano lessons, and I was really good at math. Um, (laughs) And I grew up in a restaurant, and so all uh, all of
0: the cliches just wrapped up. Yeah, all the cliches, and I
2: think the cliche is true too. That I think that there was uh, there was a a temptation to be emotionally dull. Uh, You know, I grew up in a family where we could fight at home, uh, yell at the top of our lungs, throw things, and then wake up the next morning and I'll go to the restaurant together and act as though nothing happened. And when that first customer walks in, we're like, Hey, how are you? And <laughs> you know, some people be like, that's weird. It's fake. It wasn't so much that we were faking it as so much as we were pressing a button, like, okay, well it's time to serve. And so, you know, there's a, there's an unhealthy compartmentalization. However, what I would say is the the, the benefit of growing up in, in Canada where it's, you know, it's, there's a huge, you know, there's just, it's very multicultural and, um, Having friends, and then ultimately in the kingdom, kind of deepening that experience. Like I learned, uh, you know, from my white friends, I learned emotional honesty. They were honest in a way that I didn't know how to be. Uh, I remember with my black friends, they resolved conflict very aggressively and openly. But at the end of the day, it's like you could be angry but still cool with each other. And those are those are things that you learn in a context of like friendship or community. Um, and so uh, I'd like to say that, you know, my father's decision to move to Canada obviously was a huge benefit. And my brother and I, who he, my brother's not a Christian, but he, uh, we're still very close. And we often harken back at our childhood and we're, we marvel at how lucky we were to, to grow up in, in a place like Canada and, and mm-hmm. obviously not currently in America, where you do can kind of get the exposure to a lot of different different
0: cultures. Wow. Okay. So you're Asian American couple leading a church in Detroit pretty much in the the center of all the racial issues that have happened over the past three or four years, for sure. How have you navigated that? I mean, that's, that would be a challenge just to, just to be in that area um, near all the, the, you know, the center with the George Floyd protests and everything like that. How, how, how has that been been over the past several years?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, yeah, there's a there's a confluence of many issues packaged into that one question i'd say two things one as far as the city of detroit goes uh as much as it sort of historically has um you know kind of had had you know the, you know unfortunately incidents with race and all that I would say in the last three, four years, that's not been sort of the texture of it. In fact, during the entire joint, there was not one right, not one window was broken during that time. And I think it, it speaks to uh, the leadership of the people in Detroit, the leadership of the Detroit, uh, the Detroit police force um and i think that you know again it, it harkens back to what we talked about how did we deal with this and how did the church i want to say the church was very unified mm-hmm. and, and and we didn't feel like oh this is going to rip us apart and i i credit the incredible leadership of the lay leadership in the detroit church uh, there's a couple named clifton and Myon Brant. brandt uh, she has since passed away, but um, they were so instrumental in keeping uh, the church unified uh, and faithful. I think about a couple like Illuminae and Carolyn. They're mm-hmm. a mixed couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in the part of the core group in the Detroit church. Um, but I, I honestly, I would be like, there's so many people that to me were just so God-centered. Mm-hmm. And the answer to this, you know, it, it, it I was asked a question. Uh, Visiting a church, saying, "What are your thoughts about deconstruction in our current youth?" And it's funny, like there's no there's no end to interpreting why something is tough or bad. But at the end of the day, the answer to that is almost always the same. It's leadership. It's leadership amongst the youth, Mm. right? Like you can to no end deconstruct deconstruction. Like why are the youth doing it? You know, it it almost always has to do with hurt. First of all, it has to do with hurt from a leader. It has to do with an influence, worldly influences, but the answer is the same, right? Like how do you tackle it? Well, in the, in the ministries that are doing great, what we see is great student leadership. Mm. You know, like and I look at our teen ministry, our teen ministry is outstanding. And we are great teen leaders, but beyond that, there's a particular young man, uh, you know, in that teen ministry who clearly rallies the teens to be spiritual and you, the naked eye wouldn't reveal it. If you walked into our teen ministry, you'd go, Hey, Mark, this teen ministry is fire. This is one of the most fired up teen ministries I've ever seen. Um, but if you know, if you kind of unpack it, I, I would trace it back to the influence of, of leadership, mm-hmm. uh, lay leadership, right? The, the people that are in the pews, the people that are the soldiers that are in the trenches. And it's the same with college ministry.
1: And the race situation. And
2: that's what we felt. We yeah. felt like it, it, the, the Detroit church stayed very, was there grumbling? There's always grumblings. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what is, but I think that the, the, and I think part of the, the evangelist's job is to elevate the voices of wisdom and faith uh, and faith that was an easy thing because these people are already so influential in the congregation. Again, the, the Clifton Brents and the, the, the 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 Faulkner's and their wives, uh, the, uh, the Sean Alexander's uh, you know, these people that I was like, wow, we are so blessed to have such a Jesus kingdom focused lay leadership Mm -hmm. that tells everyone, all right, everyone calm down. Jesus is still in control. And again, I think, what we've seen with a lot of race and political issues is people sort of weaponize rhetoric, they weaponize virtue, and we've seen that sort of manipulative tactic where you kind of, I'm going to use truth to be harsh, you know, like, okay, hang on, don't weaponize truth, or I'm going to use whatever race to uh, be mad at my evangel. Like, But I, again, I think these are men with great wisdom, and they have influence that I didn't have to say much, mm-hmm. because they were the ones that were, and you know how much easier it is our job is when great leaders are kind of speaking up on our behalf without us having to say anything. Wow, that's fantastic.
0: You know Dave Jung? Yep, okay. Do you guys know each other from the the, the past? Or yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: I've, kn- I've known Dave. Um, so Dave's older than me. Uh, he's, I think, six years older than me. So he's in his 50s.
1: We were in the ministry in the 90s with them.
2: But we were in the ministry in the 90s. And I was, you know, I was like an intern level where he was like leading a sector, if you get got him, it. you know.
0: Okay, got and it. So
2: he, was, he, he was a senior brother, um, but he's a good friend. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't be weird for him to call me or me to call him right now.
0: When you start talking about crucial, crucial Conversations, I think about Dave Jung, you know, yeah, <laughs> no, <he's, laughs> I immediately he's, thought about Dave Jung. He loves that he, stuff. He, uh, he, <laughs> well, I
2: mean, those guys, listen, I, I think some people can dread those guys or like, oh, you, you know, they can look at when you do Crucial Conversations. Uh, I, I believe this you are protecting the immune system of the church. Yeah. 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 Right. There, listen. You know, I've said this before. As evangelists, one of the skill sets you and I have to cultivate is, if we want an environment of high trust and safety and love and encouragement, we have to be able to protect it, because environments of love and safety and encouragement they are susceptible to abusers, manipulators, and bullies. Yeah. And if you don't have the skill set to deal with man, uh, manipulators and bullies, and, and Paul talked about it hey, from amongst you and people mm-hmm. are going to rot. If you don't, if we, as a venture, we don't have the skill set to deal with bullies
0: yeah.
2: or manipulators, then you will never have a healthy environment. Right. Because right. by definition, a safe environment is safe from those people.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And, it, and so, you know, Dave Jung, and and he's a guy that deals with that. And I think he deserves just a, not just a gratitude, but obviously, I think not just potted but as a vengeance, when we got to imitate some of that, Yeah, yeah. Like we have to have a little bit of that. You know, as we know, we've got to have some dog in us.
0: Exactly. I just wish I had a little transfusion of Dave Jung and me. Cause the guy is so good in dealing with tough situations, which I don't consider that a strength, something I've had to develop, but not a natural, not a natural gift, but he's just so good. I mean, his, his idea of like, just staying curious in, in tense situations. I I go back to that every time, just like, Hey, Rob, don't, don't stress out. Just stay curious, ask good questions. Don't get wrapped up emotionally, but it also reminds me of that book, A Failure of Nerve. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Probably the best leadership book written, you know, I think it was in the nineties, but I would say it's been the best book in the last 20 years. written. You know what I'm saying? And it really speaks to our our spirit of the age.
0: Exactly. Exactly what you're talking about. How, if you do, if you don't, stand up to bullies it, it, it can destroy the whole church like it's allowing a virus to just run wild in your church and and destroy it and i mean the book is really good i'd say about two thirds of it is awesome the last third is is not easy to read but man yep, i the agree first, first section is just awesome i think he passed away halfway through the book and, <laughs> yeah. and so the last oh. part is a little shaky but the you know you just need to first two thirds and you're good to go
2: yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love what you said, Rob, about how he stays curious. I read a book called "Managing Leadership Anxiety." It's written by a pastor mm-hmm. named Steve Cuss, and his story is that when he graduated college, his first like uh, 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 job yeah. was uh, an emergency ward chaplain. So <laughs> as I, I, a twenty two year old, yeah, twenty two year old, he's 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 his job is to deal with people that are grieving as their pa- family dies. Yeah. And he said that, and and he said that the, there's two things that people do is is when crisis and anxiety are are just knocking at your door, they either get bigger or they get smaller.
0: Mm.
2: All right, they get big like, oh let me. They start controlling, they start yelling, or they get really small. They're like, I'm gone. You know what? I'm just gonna excuse myself. Can I not be here? And he said, don't do either of those. And he said, what do you do? Lean into courage and stay curious. And and at 22, you know, he would see someone, you know, the matriarch of a family pass away, and people just all these overt expressions of grief, people hitting their heads on the wall, crying. And at 22, he said,
1: What do I do? What do
2: I do? And he just said, (laughs) I just leaned into it. And I just said, "Sir, I don't know what to say, but can I help you? And he just, and he would stay there all day. And he just said, after like, you know, five years of doing that, I felt comfortable. Like, you know, but it starts with what you're talking about, this curiosity that displaces the tendency to want to control or to retreat.
0: Knowing what you know now, if you had to walk into Detroit next Sunday and start a new church with zero members, what would you do and how?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I um, you know, it's interesting because obviously, church is like you know at two fifty, and I guess the question is, if you start from ground zero, what does it look like? And and I think that regardless of the size, um. But our task is, you know, whether your church is 30 or if it's zero or if it's 250, you're still trying to sort of mobilize a critical mass of devoted individuals. Right. It's more like how you do that is different. Obviously, you're starting with zero, you're you're trying to meet them and you're trying to baptize them, right? But when you have a church of 250, you're trying to find them, like all right, who who amongst <laughs> 250? But honestly, even in a church of 250, sometimes you still gotta like find them and baptize them. You know, that's 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 the reality that I think escapes some of us church leaders is like, okay, maybe that critical mass that the, the mighty men that I'm going to form aren't here yet. Mm-hmm. And that's okay mm-hmm. because it just, God just says, go find those guys. Right. Um, and whatever, but that's what you're trying to do. And I think, you know, obviously I, I think, um, you know, I think of, you know, I think of yourself and and there's a, there's, you've garnered a level of not just respect, but I think that where you go, other evangelists, don't worry about that church. Let's, let me just say it that way. And, and because we trust that where Rob Skinner is, he is going to create an oasis of faith. Uh, you know, and that, that does that mean that a church that Rob leads has no problems? No, (laughs) every church has problems, but it means that the church that Rob leads is going to, there's going to be a critical mass of people like I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 I think of that. And then kind of a second aspect to that question is like, what am I trying to do with that critical mass ultimately? And, um, you know, this is where you kind of got us evangelists kind of at, uh, uh, on our, our uh, talking points that we love. But I think the most indispensable skill a Christian, not just a leader or evangelist, but the most indispensable skill a Christian can have, in my opinion, is the ability to know how to lead another person to Christ. And as we know, that's not that's not simple, right? It means that you have to know your Bible. It means you have to know how to communicate it. You have to know how to evaluate. You need to know, evaluate people's responses. You have to have a toolbox of varied responses to their varied responses. Oh, what do I do if the atheist says this? What do I do if this religious person says this? And you grow in that toolbox. But the people that develop that historically, and Rob, you and I are at the age now where we have a size sample, not only of like a lot of people, but we also have the hindsight of like seeing where people go in 20 years. Mm -hmm. We have the hindsight of saying like, I know what that campus guy becomes in 20 years. Mm -hmm. and I know what that campus girl becomes because I've seen it. You know, and you're like, oh, okay, I've seen where that pride leads. And I've seen where somebody who knows how to lead someone to Christ by like they, they them in the Bible, they, make, they can lead someone in their own to Christ, that that inevitably shapes their worldview of church, leadership, and, and how they serve God. Uh, because once you understand how somebody comes to Christ— repents gets baptized becomes a disciple you understand a lot about what makes a church healthy
0: right right oh i totally agree what about you ruth what do you think
1: i actually those are oasis of faith definitely uh you want to bring a team i think that was your question right if you're or, trying or, to start over start you over. want to bring a team of people that are devoted to god his scriptures uh, that love people i think that's the other thing is very hard to teach that like loving people mm-hmm. it's easy to, you know to have leadership skill but definitely love people um community. and community right so as a leader you want a team that you feel like the, these are my people right like we're going together we're in it together yep. so
0: I, I mean i couldn't agree more with you i just feel like you have to have at all times, a core of people that are really passionate about the mission, Jesus, you know, being just who are all in, who are really just crazy about about God and just a little, you know, extreme in, in, in different ways. And I think that that's so important, whether you're starting a team, that's what's fun about starting a mission team or starting a new church is it's really clear at that point. Like okay, we have a very limited focus. We're all working together. We know exactly what our objectives are. As the church grows, then it starts to splinter, and you you know you get people all over the map. They're in the first, second, third, fourth soil all over. But you still have to find that that core. And I I totally agree with you. I think that that's that's one thing I really love about um, what I call my young guns, or you know, and I know this that's a well used term, but. Just having some young guys, you know, in their twenties and thirties that are really dedicated, it's fun. It's fun to yeah. be around them and it's refreshing for me. I mean, I just get so Motivation much out of it. It does. And it and it for, forms like a heartbeat for your church. It's like a, a reference point. You go, okay, this this is what it looks like to be a very extremely passionate disciple of Christ. And we all get into different stages of our life, whether we're in our thirties, forties, fifties, pressure cooker years, kids distracted, getting choked out by different things, but it's really powerful for a church to have that kind of beating heart of, of passionate disciples. And so I think that's, that's great. And then you also said, um, just developing the indispensable skill of making disciples. I go, bro, that's so, that's so true. I mean, it's like for many people, they spend years and they, they, they're not involved in other people's lives. And, it's so sad. I feel sorry for them because they're missing out on one of the most enjoyable and satisfying and rewarding things about just being a Christian at any age of any level of responsibility. So I think, you know, I know sometimes people roll their eyes, oh, we're going to do a first principle series or whatever. And I go, man, if you only knew what you're missing by just helping a single soul become a Christian. I mean, yeah. it's just... well.
2: Ministry is, I say, it's like music. You don't have to be good at it to have a lot of opinions about it, right? <laughs> and, right, like it's just there's no shortage of fielding people's opinions, and you know, and ninety nine percent of the time when you're fielding the opinions of what your church should do, the people that are offering those opinions, they're not accountable for those opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, like, hey, Rob, get everyone on your church to wear pirate hats. Well, not only is that a terrible idea, but if you were somehow coerced to do that idea, what a waste of time and resources right. that ultimately I'm not going to be accountable for. You are, mm-hmm. um, but man, when somebody knows, and there is a, and as evangelists, we know that one of the one of the worst kept secrets is we can tell in our leaders those that know how to lead, like lead studies and bring someone to Christ, right. because there's a distinction in wisdom, in passion, and in conviction about these these men and women, and it's like. Yeah, it, it's this isn't you know we're always looking for the new thing to do, but this is hearkening to foundational wisdom that yeah. builds the church.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Like I preach on Sundays and I look out on the crowd and it's awesome, but then I look over to my left and I'll see this this young man that I converted last year, and there's a special care and a sense of a sense of joy and pride when I look at him, and then the person that he reached out to and baptized, and it's it just. I can't help but feel a sense of fatherly love and you know concern because of the personal involvement there that, that God gave oh. me. It's just, it's just awesome.
2: There, there's a, there's a book called the catalyst and it just talks about how people change and it's, it's written by a guy, this is a secular book, but this is a guy that convinces on the phone, like hardened, uh, terrorist bombers to give themselves up and he's got five minutes and part of, They did a social experiment on change and they got uh, every experiment that they did trying to get smokers and teen smokers to stop didn't work. It just hardened them. But then when they did this campaign where they handed out little notes to people where little kids asked them, can I get a cigarette? And all the smokers just lectured these kids, don't ever do that or don't ever. And then they gave them a note and it said, thank you for thinking of me. Why don't you, you know, why don't you, and it gave them a number to a hotline and the numbers to that hotline increased by like a factor of 10. But what the study revealed was that we are our best selves when we're helping other people. Yeah. But it's just a reaffirmation of what you and I have already known. The scriptures teach us anyways, right? Exactly. We are making disciples when we are helping other people. We, the qualities about us, sort of the glory self, the person that God had intended us to be, that comes out right because when we're now not thinking oh, I'm not happy we're thinking how can I help this guy yeah like god created you and I to be burdened by the needs of other people
0: cuz that's yeah. who god is that's right that's right that's awesome okay so looking forward in into 2324 w- what are you excited about like do you see what's the next growth center for the Detroit church
2: yeah that's um and obviously, I want to answer that question in a non, I guess, a non-traditional way, because uh, obviously I, I the, the, the typical answer has been traditionally for us campus. Um, and that is and for many reasons why that is chosen, it wasn't just kind of out of favoritism or sort of a default mode or tradition. But the reason why campus is an excellent growth center and such a focus for so many evangelists is because. With the college ministry, what they represent is uh, what the youth brings is teachability, uh, uh, availability, uh, and and capability, Mm. the three abilities, right? So you've got at that age, obviously, if they're in college, they're teachable. Uh, Obviously, when you're 19, 20, you don't have a marriage and two kids for the most part that you're navigating. And also, you know, again, if you're in college, you're somewhat capable, you would hope. Um, But uh, you know, to answer your question, what's the next, or what, you know, what other areas of growth? Um, what it made me think about is this current generation, and I'm obviously when you speak about a large group, you're, you know, you're making some wide generalizations. But in general, what I would say with sort of the current young generation or this cohort is that they are very connected. Um, you know, more than ever, it's a global village, and th- through social media and information technology, you know, a bomb goes off in Libya our teens know, you know, and, um, type of thing. Uh, I, I would say that I find them intelligent, uh, from just, you know, we're in information technology. And so their ability to regurgitate facts, uh, is probably like unprecedented, uh, you know, and then, you know, they're, they're insightful. Uh, but that being said, uh, I think like anything, there comes with its challenges. And I think that their emotional thresholds are lower. And I think there's studies to prove that. And I think part of that is with the way that information is, is disseminated, I think the, the the screen time, it all lowers emotional thresholds. I think more people are single, uh, you know, with things like dating culture and stuff like that and, and disillusionment. Uh, and as a result, what I my personal like analysis would be that it it feels like younger people are maturing later that, that, you know, the, that as a kind of a compromise to the connectivity, there's a lack of independent Uh, with a lack of independence at times, there can be a propensity for lack of independent thought perhaps. And so they become a dependent uh, there's no doubt this, this is a generation that has already been marked with depression and anxiety and I say all that to say that I think that, you know, it's making us perhaps maybe gravitate a little bit past the campus and to look at that Yopro as kind of a well of young people. And just, you know, because I said the thresholds and maybe there's just a patience game where you're like, OK, maybe some of these campus aren't quite ready uh, for that level of training yet. And maybe they need to be, you know, whereas maybe in our day you were 19 and 20 and leading the Bible talk. OK, uh, maybe um, maybe they're going to be 24 and 25. Uh, and they're going to come packaged with other stuff. And so I think a lot of the churches that I've seen uh, really thrive, and I, I would harken back to like the Boston church, um, with Kevin Miller and Stuart Maines and and sort of these uh, notable kind of what I would call them sort of ministry giants and studs of uh, uh, Tony Fernandez out in Broward. One of, the, one of the markers that's really obvious in their church is a growing, dynamic, vibrant uh, Yo Pro ministry. And I think that's something that as evangelists, we got to get good with, mm-hmm. like you and I can probably regurgitate all the elements of campus. Mm-hmm. I think our first step is like guys like you and I got to be like, OK, t- t- you know, with faith, we can figure it out. But let's figure what are the elements that grow and go into a, a dynamic YoPro ministry. And I, I think that's going to be the skill set that a lot of guys are, are going to have to figure out. you say something or anything?
1: No, I think that makes sense
2: social media stuff too so that's i
1: do agree with uh, people being like more limited in their capacities because of all the global information yeah right our brains are not made to take in all that and because we're taking in so much we get easily depressed easily discouraged right which is sad yeah
2: there's a finite amount of space our brains can take right right Right.
0: What, what advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count?
2: Yeah, um, that's a deep and loaded question. Uh, obviously, I think if someone were to ask that question, there's a lot of assumptions in there. Let me um, let me piecemeal that question in three. One, I think there's an inward question, in that, and whether it's your, you, there's an inward, you know, the cliché. Be the change you want to see in the world, and I would say that that's a there's an inward question that has to be asked like what do I need to become. But I think there are outward questions that 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 is packaged or baked into that question like what skills do I need to manifest and then the the, probably the question that everyone's is where do I direct my efforts, and I think. You know, you have to piecemeal those the, the what you're actually asking because it's very easy to just sort of you know you, it's easy to mischaracterize what is being asked because uh, some people might be asking one part and then we're trying <laughs> to answer the other. So let me try to look at this. So the first question, you know, the inward question: um, What do I need to become in order to make my life count? Uh, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said that you can summarize discipleship to Jesus in three words: devotion community and ministry and you know we like to keep it simple and I think if you are starting off with that question how can I change I guess I would just say are you a great (laughs) disciple to Jesus and can we look at your devotion you know are you devoted to community and how is your ministry you know how is your outward focus and if those things are exemplary I think that's that's a great starting point I think The the second aspect to this question is what skills do I need to manifest? And it's kind of baked into what we already talked about before, but I think I would encourage people to manifest their communication skills. And I think that that doesn't necessarily have to mean, Oh, public speaking. I think it can mean, I think it starts with one-on-one. I think it starts with cultivating listening skills, right. And interpreting skills, like listen to people, talk to people, um, and then as you and I know, Rob, one of the things that every evangelist wishes we had more of is men and women that would actually have crucial conversations, right? You know, it's how many times in a church service do you inherit an errand? Hey Rob, just so you know, Bob's struggling. You like, <laughs> you think you could talk to Bob? You know, just so you know, you know, like just so you know, Rob, but just I'm doing you a favor. Might Sally you know. <laughs> Yeah, Sally and schmally they're having a little gossip drama, just Doing my part to let you know, now go ahead and fix it. And you're kind of like, is there, is there anybody here that wants to lean in, in crucial conversations mm-hmm. rather than delegate them? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so yeah, I think what skills do you manifest the ability to to connect and talk with people, and I think it starts there. And and if you do a good job, those your forum only grows. Right, but but the people that change the world are communicators. Right, right. Those are the people that that truly change the world. And it, and again, it doesn't mean you're a public speaker. It means that you can sit down with a person and time, and you know you're you know you're changing their life because of the time you're having with them is so interesting and fun. Right, and you're like, oh, this is amazing, and because changing the world feels that way. Changing a life is exciting. It's fun. If it's boring, you're not doing it right right um and then uh the third aspect is where do i direct my efforts so you know it's the inward question am am i have i am i the person to change the world well you know ask those questions are you a great disciple you know the sort of the bonhoeffer definition of of a discipleship and what skill manifest your skills to talk and hear Uh, and then where do i direct my efforts i think that answer is something that's a journey for all of us i would say the answer lies in what you believe the gift that god has given you um, so I would think that, that, you know, and whatever allows you to thrive. So for some people, it's you direct your efforts in, in, um, in serving, you know, or whatever. And then you, you kind of you, within that, there are people within, you know, you like, oh, the, the setup crew. Yeah. Not all setup crews are equal. You put a great leader in that setup crew and he makes those guys passionate and unified. And those guys have found Mm -hmm. how they are going to build the kingdom. It's fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so don't think that because something's already established that you can't change the world by interjecting yourself into it. You know, your church might feel like healthy. Tell you what, you can always use a guy that make that takes the level of excitement and communication and unity to that next level. And so I, I guess, you know, that that's kind of the, the question for all of us is where do my where do my gifts direct me mm-hmm. uh, where I can best kind of make this life count?
0: Ruth, any anything you want to add to that?
1: No, those are all very wise way of thinking about it. inwardly. Yeah. you know, devoted Christian. Like that's that's the first step. Right. After that, you can move forward. But I agree communication. Well, you know, I got with someone this morning and she was having issues with a brother, just teaching her how to speak to a brother. Uh, that's that makes her life better. Yeah, right. you exactly.
2: Know? Exactly. It's a life skill. It's the essence of, of, of impact.
1: And definitely with the gifts, know what you have, know what others have and place them in their right spots. Right. Because that will make everyone happy. Yeah. You know, if you're yeah. closer and closer. Yeah.
0: Well, there's certainly a theme that's come out from this conversation is the emphasis on identifying and raising up leaders, the, the need for leaders. And whether it's in the young professionals or trying to help equip people to use their gifts so that one person doesn't have to carry the entire burden of the church, but everyone is contributing and participating and helping solve the problems that come up in a church like that. So, and I can also see how your upbringing, Uh, in your, your, your background has really trained you to be able to tackle tough challenges and to have the kind of emotional toughness necessary to, to handle a church and to be able to handle it with equanimity. So it's really impressive. It's great to get to know you guys a little bit better and just all the best to you and your work there in Detroit.
2: Thanks so much, Rob. And thanks for asking us It's a real
0: honor.
1: Thanks, Rob.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First of all, hit the subscribe button and send a link to your friends. Let people know about it. Secondly, read and review one of my books, either How to Plant and Grow a Church or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find both of those on Amazon.com. Finally, support the Rob Skinner podcast with a gift. The link is in the show notes. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.